Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today on Climate Change in the Multiverse. I'm Kelly Tatham, and today we have Leah Garza with us. Leah is a decolonial leader, educator, and healer. By her own words, she is consumed with liberation, mental, physical, emotional, spiritual, social. From her background in education, she recognized the power of knowledge as a way to provoke and guide liberation. After the 2016 election, Leah was called to expand her work beyond the 3D world into Crystals of Altamira, a house of decolonial healing and radical visioning, where Leah works with the Akashic Records, a vibrational record of our soul's journey throughout time. Using the records as a decolonial and healing tool, she also leads decolonial study groups that tackle fat phobia, social identity, and sustainable activism. Leah and I met in Los Angeles uh, early last year, where she gave me a reading of my own Akashic records that really deepened my own understanding of the world and myself. And I've been following her and enjoying her broadcast on social media ever since. She speaks boldly and radically to the discomfort of decolonization and puts words to the practice of decolonization in ways that I don't see many other people doing. Mm. Specifically, when she speaks to worth, she says, measures of worth only exist because slave-based capitalism has identified humans as objects. I have no worth because I am sacred. Hearing that to me turns everything on its head, which is why I wanted to have her here today to discuss all of this further. Thank you so much for being here, Leah. Thanks for having me. When you say it like that, it sounds so much more grandiose than I really think of like my little Instagram. So thank you. Oh, you're doing such powerful work on there. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So how are you today? I want to check in first. We're in a bit of a tumultuous time in the world. Yeah. Um, today I'm doing great. <laughs> today feels good. I, you know, I just, I'm going with the waves and not trying to resist anything that's happening with myself and my body and know that this is like um, a time that we've all been waiting for. So yeah, I'm feeling resourced today. How about you? Today feels good. Yeah. Thank you. It's been, um, Every day has been wildly different. Mm -hmm. A lot of days I've been crying lately. Um, to those of you tuning in, we're, it's June 11th, June 12th. And um, I think it was the beginning of last week when everything in the world really uh, expanded in a new way. And the whole world was called to attention with the Black Lives Matter protests. And I have been grappling with with an immense amount since then and feeling many pillars of my life yeah. crumbling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. What I don't I don't have like a sense of time anymore. Um, so I don't know like when things happened, <laughs> but it feels like. Um, yeah. There. Yeah, I don't even know what to say about that. Just a, yeah, it's a day by day process, sometimes hour by hour, but still feeling like this is like what we're here for. So, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. 
And the energy must be intense where you are. You live in what we call Los Angeles, and which is very much the epicenter of the protests with tens of thousands, if not more, people out on the streets. Yes, Los Angeles is unceded Tongva land. And it actually has been feeling much better lately. There were some days where um, our curfew got down to like, in some parts of the city, like 1pm. So it was like, <laughs> you could be outside for like, eight hours or something. It was kind of wild. Um, I live in East Hollywood. And it was um, very was you know East Hollywood was not at all like the epicenter of anything that happened, but it was definitely a hot zone. Um, but LA always to me has a lot of tension and rage boiling under the surface. It has a really long history of racism, coloniality, segregation, redlining, um, just a lot of division and oppression. It's one of the only places on the West Coast that had live slave auctions. Um, it, it just has a history in place. You know, the place speaks of the history of the pain here. So it's, it feels almost like it's easy for just anything to send it off. And the murder of George Floyd was no, you know, a, a perfect catalyst because I think it was just like, um, a mirror of so much of the real brutality that black indigenous people of color experience here in LA. Yeah. People of LA could feel it. Yeah. I felt that when I, whenever I spend time there, that the energy of LA is just very um, precarious that it could tip at any point. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I, I wonder because LA is so big, like so many people live here. I, I think a lot about like mm, if we can sustain critical mass long enough to really force the hand of policymakers here in LA, it's, it's an exhausting place to live. Like when I first moved here, I had envisioned like, Oh, I'm good. I moved from the Bay area. Like I'm going to have a house with a pool cause you can live in the suburbs there and I got here and it was like, no, that's not a reality. And like, it's not suburban. I mean, there are suburbs in LA, but like where I live, it's like not chill at all. It's like lawlessness. It felt, it feels that way, which in a lot of ways I appreciate, but in other ways, like just, yeah, it's, it's, it feels hot here all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I hear that. Do you, bring us to the Akashic Records. Do cities have Akashic Records? Everything with consciousness has an Akashic Record. So you absolutely could open the records of Los Angeles, which I've never done, I don't think. You could open the records of the United States. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Akashic Records because it'll all come back around to what's sure. going on. Yeah. Would you like to tell us a little bit about how, how they work? Yes. So the Akashic records are, you know, as you said, the vibrational record of the soul from its inception. And the soul, um, I mean, 
I don't want to like give a definition for the soul, but anything that has consciousness has an Akashic record, including institutions. Like um, you can open the records of a business. You can open the records of a relationship. Um, so it pushes us to understand what has consciousness and what doesn't. Um, the records contain everything that the soul has experienced. So, or, you know, we call them past lives, but there's no time in the record. So past lives are actually concurrent lifetimes. Um, I'm able to tap into people's experiences in the womb in early childhood. And we can, because it has like the, it is the, you know, Akasha means the, the primary substance from which all things are created it has all of our future potentials um, kind of like the probabilities are imprinted there without them being decided for us. So I don't really do a lot of future telling. I don't feel like that is something I'm good at, something I want to be responsible for or something that is really helpful often for people. Um, but the readings I do are really the work I do in the records for other people is to help them with limiting beliefs and moving through blocks, um, traumas and challenges, patterns that they're just like, how do I get rid of this? But personally, the records have been kind of like an Oracle for like a companion for understanding the politicized world that we live in. And the deeper I go into the records, the deeper I go into, um, understanding decoloniality. So, um, yeah, there it, it's an incredible, it's an incredible, bo it's not a body. It's, it's a dimension of consciousness. It's an incredible like resource to have when you want to understand your innate goodness and the goodness of everything that exists from, from a non-human high vibrational perspective. Yeah. Hmm. When you say that everything that has consciousness has a record, what's outside of that? What doesn't have consciousness? What does that look well, like? Well, there's a very controversial thing that my records told me that I don't think a lot of people agree with, but they told me that the moon doesn't have consciousness. <laughs> and I know people love the moon so much and they like probably don't want to think that. Um, there are... <clears throat> I don't know. I haven't really like explored what does and what doesn't most things that I, I don't know. That's not really ever where my inquiry is, but mm -hmm. um, yeah, the records told me the moon doesn't have consciousness that it's like in service of the, of planet earth. They called it a garbage can. <laughs> it, it, it moves around the, the earth collecting junk energy and dispelling it into the, into the universe. Um, as it, so it, it, they said that it mirrors the vascular system of the body that like, you know, an empty blood cell will like go through the lungs, collect oxygen, move through the body, dispersing oxygen to the different organs. And then when it's empty comes back through the lungs to pick up more oxygen and they said that the, the moon is like the same thing. It's like a blood cell for the earth that, it, um, you know, on the new moon, when it's empty, that's the beginning of its cycle. And then it makes its way around the planet and it, um, 
collects energy as it goes. And then we see it at its fullness when it's a full moon. And then it makes the journey to dispel that energy through the next cycle back to empty at the new moon. Um, yeah. So I don't know. People can don't at me if you don't believe what I just said, it's fine. Um, but really it's like that part doesn't even really matter. It's really like, what meaning do we make of that? You know, like, and for me, a lot of the things like that are, that I am presented with in the records constantly like mirror back to me that the, the, as above, so below as without, so within um, like precept. And that's no different, you know, to think of the moon as a macrovascular system. And then the microvascular system that lives in our bodies tells us that we're, we're really just mirroring the moon and that process is, is an inherent process to like cycle through, to collect, to dispel. Um, yeah. So that's where I put my focus. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> how, how did you first come across the records? Um, I was a classroom teacher and in, in, I, I worked in Watts and Compton and, other places in South LA and the school I was working at in 2015 closed. It was a charter school for 18 to 24 year olds. And I was, um, you know, rehired to open a new school at men's central jail. I was all set to open. And, um, about a few days before school started, I was told that they revoked the LA sheriff's department revoked my clearance and I didn't know why I have no like record, no priors, no, you know, not even a speeding ticket. I, there was no good reason. And so I was just suddenly found myself unemployed and, you know, they laid me off and I knew, I thought, I believed at that time that I would go back to teaching. But in the meantime, I was like, well, it's really hard to get a teaching job at the beginning of the school year. Cause all the positions are filled. So I'm just going to wait. And in that, in the meantime, I'll like use my unemployment and take some fun classes. And I ended up learning how to, you know, metal Smith. I, I took all these spiritual classes and a friend of mine had a reading from my teacher, Helen Vonderheide, and told me that Helen was going to be teaching a class on how to do the Akashic records. And I didn't have a reading from Helen. I had never met her. I didn't know what the records were, but my friend was like, I really think you need to take this and I'm going to pay for you. So I thought like, cool, like, let's just, you know, let's have, you know, just some me time fun. I didn't think anything of it. And it was like, when I first saw my teacher's face, I felt this immediate, like, just, you know, like I knew her. And um, then when I opened the records, it was like a really familiar feeling and it, it, it just all made sense. So yeah, I pursued that. I, I, it just felt good. So I just said, yes, I did that class. And then I did the advanced class. And then I just continued my education with, um, in the Linda Howe lineage. So Linda Howe is our teacher who created our process, the pathway prayer process for accessing the heart of the records. And so I just kept going. And now I've, I'm certified in all of her classes. I've been doing this now for four years and yeah, it's, it's, it's totally divine alignment. 
Yeah. Hmm. Within that community, have you had to um, provoke or pursue decolonial work around that institution or the other people who are working within it? Mm, In the Akashic world, you mean? Yeah. Um, Well, I would say that our community is largely affluent white people, probably mainly cis women um, who, I, I don't know. I don't, I can't name anyone specifically. I can't think of anyone specifically that I know, but I know that that demographic has historically maybe weaponized spiritual practices in ways that maybe they don't even understand they're doing. Um, you know, there's so much talk about by spiritual bypassing and, um, you know, really exclusionary white supremacist spiritual spaces. And I think that like the nature of the nature of white supremacy alone is that it exists even if we're not conscious of it. So I'm sure that it exists in the Akashic community. I don't like, um, I don't know. I don't engage with my specific group that much. We are part of like a Facebook group and I was much more active in the beginning. Cause I was one of like my teacher's first or second teaching classes, certification classes. So I've been with her from the very beginning of her process of, for teaching. Um, I would say that I came to the work already radicalized and politicized from my experience working in education. So I was looking for specific ways that it could enhance my, my like pursuit as a student of justice. Um, and decoloniality ended up being the way that they, I mean, the records plus, you know, a lot of the stuff I was reading and continue to read. Um, but it, it is, when I look at what decoloniality is, the records are incredibly decolonial. They exist outside of the human structures that oppress people outside of colonialism. And so when we can get into the records, we can, um, you know, like ask for that perspective to assist us in, in examining colonialism. But I would definitely say that white spirituality groups can always stand to push their learning, (laughs) their knowledge about, yeah, what's happening on earth, especially for black indigenous people of color and other marginalized groups. Yeah. Yeah. I asked because I've been unpacking that myself, uh, especially in the past two weeks. I've, uh, I've always been in this process of unpacking and peeling back layers but the, the the past two weeks have thrown a lot more yeah. light, yeah, and really forced me to reconcile with um, what my privilege is blinding me from seeing. Yeah. yeah, and so much of what I see in in white spirituality is this this myth of ascension, this notion of exponential growth, which we know is part of the colonial framework. Yeah. That's really easy for us. Exponential growth. What does that mean? Yeah. So this notion of, and you know, I still don't fully understand this. So I'm just speaking to where I'm at right now. In our economy, our economy is based on exponential growth. The money system relies on 
uh, consistent expansion. That's how the economy was set up. Every time new money is created, a deficit is created. So we have to keep expanding and expanding. And yeah. this this is why technology hasn't made our lives easier and hasn't solved any of the problems on the planet. It's just um, compounded them because of the economic system. Yeah, And I see that paralleled within spirituality, this notion and in the communities that I've been involved with, obviously I can't speak to all of spirituality. Specifically, I'm referring to the Kundalini work I've been doing, the Kundalini Yoga Collective, and this notion of just always achieving higher and always vibrating higher and tapping into more and expanding and expanding and losing touch uh, to my mind with grounding and then the earth and and being the balance and having the ex- human experience yeah and i wonder how much of that is authentic real evolution or white supremacist narrative yeah yes um i don't i don't think that ascension isn't not what's happening it's happening right now but i think that at least like what the records tell me and like what seems correct to me is that we don't go around it we have to go through it so we we have we are we have to reckon with the oppression that has been caused on earth there's no way to be like i i don't even deal with that i'm you know I'm ascending. I'm 5D. I don't deal with human problems. Um, I think we have, we have to like, you know, a lot of the stuff I do is just straight up belief work with clients and with myself, just working on beliefs and what our belief systems and, you know, our epistemologies and our ontologies and like how that frames what we do and what we think is possible. And so it doesn't even matter. Like, like at the core of that is like, it doesn't really matter what you believe it's that you believe it. So in a sense, it doesn't, I don't need anyone to agree that the classic records exist. All I need to do is I need to believe they exist in order for them to be profound for me. And so I think like people who have had physical privileges are now being forced to reckon with their own belief systems that, excluded like you know the global majority that does not have the privilege um but i do think that ascension is what's happening we are moving into an unparalleled experience on earth we are on the precipice of collective liberation for everybody that all of those systems and this is like why i love i i don't love but yeah i do love studying colonialism and like white supremacy because the construct of whiteness, it harms everyone, including white people. Like it it is an illusory construct of power. It is not anyone's natural birthright to like be above anyone else. It just, that's just not who we are on a soul level where we are part of the one we are part of like the collective. So like we are all at a soul level, the same. So I, I like to, I, I think that that like perspective is helpful when you're unpacking your own white, white supremacy to know that like, this is a system that I have sometimes consensually and sometimes non-consensually participated in. 
And, you know, like, because it's a system and it's not a personal process of mine, I can now detach from it. And I think like teaching, teaching people the process of detachment, which is like, you know, a very ancient process of like, you know, Zen Buddhism and like, you know, it's detachment is not new. Um, If we can learn that, then we have the, the possibility to like be the observer of how we participate and not just a hundred percent bought into the fact that like, Oh my gosh, I've been complicit in harm of black indigenous people of color. I've benefited from their oppression. I, you know, like we can start to see like, yes, that's true, but it hasn't, it wasn't my choice. And so now how can I start to unwork that and dismantle it and let that go and make that like a real sustainable process so that I don't, I, I ensure that I'm accountable for how I show up. I'm aware now. Um, but yeah, that what you're talking about, the exponential growth is like an inherent part of, yeah, you know, late capitalism, laissez-faire capitalism, race extraction, economics, um, even just like the idea of like, you know, meritocracy, just even the idea of like, um, what is it? Manifest destiny that we are entitled to spread across this land from coast to coast and we keep going and keep pursuing and it, 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 it's an insidious part of our psyches. Like even just like looking at my grade point average at school, cause I'm in a graduate program and being like, Oh, I got a C in a class ah. instead of, you know, like it's going to bring my grade point average down instead of like, who cares? Nobody looks at a GPA when you're in a PhD program like, you know, like instead of being realistic about what's happening, that little tinge of, of pain that like, I am judged by the number that I, I can't get more and more like the number needs to exponentially grow in order for me to have worth. Like it, it lives inside of us. Yeah. Mm. I hear that. I hear that. It's the constant seeking of worth, the constant need of validation. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's like what coloniality does to us. It's the the far abstract reaches of, um, you know, these social and economic and governmental structures that now are implanted and live in our bodies, in our psyches, in our knowledge, in our um, relationships. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it goes so deep. The, the, the more I learn, the more I realize it's just, I wonder, I'm like, can we even figure this out while we speak in a language that is colonial? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And I think we have to, like, there's no, we, we have to, there's no other way. Like, um, it's arduous, but there's no other way. I think like one of the first things that one of my professors told us on the first day of our, our program in which we studied decoloniality she said, it's not your fault that these systems are in place, but it is your responsibility to dismantle them. So let's, you know, like basically she's saying like, we need to let go of the shame. We need to let go of like, even just the, the idea that we're going to solve anything because it's not like, co- like a colonial way of thinking, a, a modernist way of thinking is that there's an end point to this rather than instead of looking at the end point, let's look at the process and how are we showing up in the process and let go of any expectations that we achieve some kind of mastery or, or fix it or yeah. Mm. Yeah. That linear goal-based thinking 
really gets in the way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. How do you hold that as you go through the world with that knowledge, but also participating in a PhD program and and running a business and needing to do those things while also recognizing that they're inherently troubling? Yeah, well, I think that it's, I don't know. I I think early in my social justice life, I might have thought that like participating in systems that harm people is against the work of justice. But I think that there's not a monolithic idea of how to approach dismantling. And I want to have a joyful life and I happen to love school. I just love it. And this particular program is unlike any program I've ever been in. It is the exact content that I want to be talking about. I love reading. I love writing. So for me, being in school, and this is, you know, clearly has to do with my upbringing and, you know, how I was, like, trained to be a good student but and have success within an academic, like, institution. But I also like I could spend the time to unpack that and try to stop liking it or try to figure out, I know the roots of it. Or I could also say like, this is empowering and I enjoy it and I'm going to do this. Um, And so right now I think like taking on the burden of trying to dismantle the whole system as an individual is a very unsustainable and impossible and futile perspective that, is, you know, born out of social justice, which social justice is a reactive, it's a response to colonialism and capitalism. So in a sense, it's trying to reify that same system. So what if I simply say that this is what I enjoy and I um, am going to seek the things that I enjoy also? I'm also going to do that. Yeah, I don't know. That's a wonderful point. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Seriously, I um, I've been told recently that I'm carrying too much and to, to put it down, you know, yeah. and um, feeling this responsibility of needing to do so much, wanting to do so much, and yet yeah. starting to recognize that that sort of martyrdom is part of the system I'm seeking to dismantle, yeah. and I'm most effective when I'm living in my gift and when I am following my joy. Totally. Yeah. And the records, so the records are like, we have a prime directive to follow our soul's purposes here. And we can't do that if we are um, not listening to ourselves. And the records, in a sense, because they don't, I don't want to say they don't care about what's happening here, but like what happens on earth from the perspective of the Akashic records is only a scenario that helps us expand the consciousness of our souls. It isn't the only existence there. Like to, it it is a blip of the experience in the human playground um, to be here living among each of each, each other in the systems that we live in. And then we die and then we, you know, the human dies and then we, um, get back on the ride again, no matter how fraught the ride was. So I I think also like having that detachment or having that kind of like observer perspective that the Akashic Records allows us to have 
it gives me an understanding for the process that we're going through. So like something that just came up in a reading the other day was that um, they wanted to ask about what's going on and the record said, everyone who's here right now, whether they are fighting for liberation or causing oppression, whether it's, you know, a police officer or a protester, every single person in that scenario is here working toward the collective liberation. So just zooming out, like panning out to that really wide angle and looking at the planet like that, it it just gives me so much compassion for what people elected to do with their souls on the soul level when they came here, even if it's to cause harm, because that harm in some way is for the consciousness expansion of another and for themselves. So that doesn't mean that I just sit back and say, Oh, it's a soul level thing. And I'm going to spiritually bypass this. Like, no, my prime directive is to be a seeker of liberation and to speak up on those matters. So I can't just let it go. Uh, You know, I can't just like write it off to like, that's what the soul, it's a soul contract, like in the way that so many people do. So yeah, it's a weird balance of both things. I hear that. I, you know, I, I've always believed that, that everything is unfolding as it's meant to, and it can't be different than how it is. And everyone is playing their role. Um, For example, your current president is activating so much and we look at him with such vitriol, which is valid. And yet what is happening, this catalyzation is, is so necessary And yet it's so deeply traumatizing and it's so easy for me as a white person currently living in what we call Canada to look at that and say, oh, well, you know, that's just like, what's supposed to happen? Like, how can I say that to someone who is, you know, on the streets in Los Angeles, living in a black body, being traumatized every day? And yet that's what we're holding. We're holding both of those things at the same time. And it's for me, that's where the overwhelm and the confusion comes from yeah yeah it's how do we hold both I think like one of the things that we learn from like indigeneity indigenous um ontologies indigenous cosmovisions is that which is not indigenous culture so I just want to make there there's a distinction there but we learn that um we exist in relationship with each other so that is a core aspect of being human And modernism and colonialism really, really tried to destroy that in us, really tried to make us think that we're individuals and that the individual is the supreme, you know, knower and ruler of the experience. And it's just simply not true. Like like there are indigenous concepts across the planet that explain, like, for example, the Zulu concept of Ubuntu, I am because we are, this idea that like, I don't even exist if I'm not in relationship with my community. I'm not, I only exist because I am in relationship. So if we can hold that concept and we know that we feel it, even if we have been so separated from community because of colonial constructs, we still feel the need to connect and to be a part of each other's lives and have, you know, impact on the community or on other people, we still desire that. 
a lot of structures, you know, try to separate us from that. But so if we can hold that and then at the same time hold that, yeah, on a soul level, Donald Trump is doing exactly what is needed here on earth and elected on a soul level to come here and be the most hated projection screen ever for all of the things that we're trying to work through. Like, and I want to just say that I personally do not enjoy this person at all as a human. And I can't even listen to his voice. It's so triggering. Um, But I have deep compassion and reverence for a being that would choose to come down and be so hated Mm -hmm. for the, in order to push the rest of us to step into our power. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think like if we understand that he's kind of mirroring our powerlessness, then we can step into that power in wherever we are. So, you know, if you're not in the United States, but you see, you feel that just hatred for Donald Trump and what he does. And you want to like push back by creating justice wherever you are or working toward that, wherever you are, then he's doing the work on you that was meant to happen because this is a global process. This is not just a United States issue. This is a global process. Yeah. Yeah, Cause he's not an individual. He's a manifestation of our shadow Yes. Yeah. The records have shared with me like that the United States have has a core wound of powerlessness. And so everyone that is mm-hmm. here at this moment and they've said the United States, cause that's where I focus on, but it's probably anywhere in the colonial, you know, global North, um, a core wound of powerlessness. So everyone here experiences that on some level, either personally or in their families or community or society. Um, And he's no different. He is like a perfect example of someone so disconnected from feeling love and feeling powerless that the only, and the only way he knows how to do is through his indoctrination as like a white cishet man And that's Mm -hmm. to exact power. It's like to bring that power down on others. Um, And we're bearing the brunt of it. And especially black indigenous people of color, women and queer people are especially bearing the brunt of his need to feel love. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And that's all it ever comes down to. We just want to be loved. I think that's what the powerlessness is. It's just that lack of love feeling that we're separate from it. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say like, I want to make it really clear that I'm not rolling over on accountability for him. Like, I'm not saying that, Oh, he needs to feel loved. Let's just, (laughs) no, 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 no. But like what the records teach us is that uh, like what they have been showing me this past week is that compassion goes hand in hand with accountability and you can't have compassion without accountability. Cause if you don't have the accountability, then you just have pity and that's mm. not a forward moving energy at all. That doesn't resolve anything that doesn't aid anything. Compassion is like comes with that action of like being in relationship, 
holding someone accountable, being accountable yourself, repairing the harm. It, it all comes together. Um, so I'm just, I just want to like be very clear that like, these, this is like from my Akashic perspective, when I go into the records as a human being, I have, it is impossible for me to find compassion for him. I just, it's really hard as a human <laughs> to, to validate anything that he does or his cabinet. Yeah. I hear that. I hear that. That's the, the t- tight rope of balance that we're walking is acknowledging that it's like, this needs to unfold. Therefore I can't blame him. And yet accountability must be held. And my anger and disgust is yeah. so valid. Yeah. Oh, I blame him constantly every day <laughs> for everything. But, but, but yeah, understanding that, like, I think like another part of um, yesterday, I just, um, talked about on Instagram this article by Tima Okun and it's about white supremacist culture um, and one of the the characteristics of white supremacist culture and one of the characteristics that she lists that white supremacists manifest as is a right to comfort that idea mm-hmm. that like we will do anything to make sure that we at, you know, like white supremacy will manifest itself in us by ensuring that we're comfortable. And so when things become uncomfortable, we will do anything, including disavow oppression, cause harm to others, cause harm to like the people we love or the planet or nature in order to maintain comfort. And so I think like it's deeply uncomfortable it's painful to experience living in this society at this moment. And we want to like look away, but the nature of our being is eternal and powerful and and empowered and loved and loving. We can sustain discomfort. We just have to like believe in, we have to believe that we can, you know, like we, um, we have a very high threshold for pain but we have a very low threshold for the anticipation of pain or the narrative of pain. So it, mm-hmm. it, it just, we have to like get right with like, what can we actually hold? We can hold a lot. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I never considered it that way that the threshold for pain versus the anticipation of pain. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, I think, right? yeah, it totally does because it's all about like, and, and again, it's just removing us from being in the present moment, which is a colonial uh, imposition. You know, that's all of this is like the separation, right? From the yeah. power, from the love, from being exactly where we are. And so then we get into that fear state, that anticipation of like, well, I, I'm not going to speak my truth because like, what if. that person doesn't receive it. And then I feel the pain or what if, you know, they don't, they reject me or on and on and on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of people like when they started issuing the COVID tests and in the U S the first one that came out was like that thing that goes way up your nose and people were like, um, I don't want to do that. Even though we know that, testing is one of the only ways to like know what's happening with this, with this virus. People are just like, 
Like you're going to survive it. You're going to get through it. It will suck, but you're fine. But people were like, absolutely not. So then when they started dispatching the swab test, people, I know people that go now once a week to get tested, but it, it was like, it's, it's funny. And we can like, look to, we can just look to history to see how we can sustain, like colonization attempted to completely wipe out indigenous people in this country. Like it, it, it attempted to genocide on such a large scale and yet native American people exist because of the ability to survive, which is the ability, which is the, the quality of resilience, which is that humans can sustain a tremendous amount of pain and loss and grief and suffering. But the story is what really terrifies us. Mm. Mm. You posted on Instagram recently about trauma and joy, mm. which comes to mind when you say this, 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 the, like the depths of our pain are the depths of our love. And yeah. we live in this polarity reality. And so like you can't have one without the other. Yeah. They exist right next to each other. And I want to just, you know, really give it up to black feminist authors because that's a concept that's rooted in black feminism, like Audre Lorde's uses of the erotic and, um, you know, pleasure activism by Adrienne Marie Brown, like um, black femmes have been trying to teach us for a very long time and we have not been listening, but there's no, there's just no way that there's just no way that like, enslaved people could have survived if they couldn't find some center of joy. Like it's, it's not, it's not like joy. I don't mean joy has been so weakened in our, like the narrative of joy has been so weakened in our society that it's like, it's pejorative. It's like, it's silly. It's frivolous. And really it's actually necessary to, meet suffering to meet pain. Like it's, it's necessary. It's a necessary counterbalance, um, for survival and for resilience. And it's, it's like, yeah. And when I say joy, I don't simply mean like, you know, like riding on a roller coaster and eating an ice cream and like, you know, things that are like playful and silly, although that can be joyful. I mean, joy is in like, the moments of expansion where you can breathe and relax and not have to be on guard where you can connect with each other and, and yourself in a loving and, and fun way in a, in a joyful way in a, in a process that has levity, the, the moments when you can allow yourself to dream or daydream or imagine or play, have playfulness in your mind to be creative so it's not, I, I don't just mean like, you know, you know, silly, like the, 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 the tropes that we get of joy. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's much more complex and nuanced than that. Cause you know, joy has been co-opted in so many ways. Yeah. Totally. Um, yeah. yeah. I wonder when we're going to start to see that within protest. Yeah. Because right now protest just feels like anger and grief being expressed. Yeah. Well, I mean, they were like the first week that after George Floyd was murdered, they were literally a response 
to the the rage coming through like the, in that in that moment there's maybe no place for joy but as as the protests and the resistance like kind of like morphed like in my observation people were doing like joyful things like there was a curfew imposed in Oakland California and people came out and had a dance party and so they're in resistance but they're doing it in a way that is autonomous and empowered and you know full of life and connection with each other and we just saw the um, Chapel Hill Autonomous Zone happen in Seattle they have like the people have taken over the blocks around one of the police precincts and the police have fled, I think. And now it is an autonomously, you know, run space and people are taking care of each other and, you know, creating art in that space on the sidewalks and the walls. And um, yeah, I, I think it, it, it's, it's, it's coming through. Joy is coming through. That's amazing. I guess I've been, uh, well, I mean, whatever we're taking in from the world is narrow. I, I just see what is on my feed and where I choose to read the news um, or who I talk to. And I think that I've been trying as much as possible to take in all of these different narratives and see yeah. it from all these different perspectives. But I haven't been seeing joyful protest and it's my fault for thinking that it just ha isn't hasn't been there and it's just no it just hasn't been available i don't think it's your fault i think the news curate the news curates what we see 100 percent. Mm -hmm. and the we i mean the week the week of george floyd's murder protesters were not met with like a space that allowed them to protest they were met with war you know like mm -hmm. california mm -hmm. released the national guard a militarized, you know, body, like almost immediately, like we were put on curfew, like very quickly. Like it was incredible. Like there were like military helicopters flying very low above my apartment, shining their lights into my apartment. You know, like it really like immediately went straight to like martial law. And so I think like there, you know, Protest is an expression of autonomy and sovereignty. And that is the sovereignty will kill capitalism. And so I think, you know, the news will never show the images that celebrate the sovereignty of the people. Yeah. Mm. It's not your fault. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Very quickly myself. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <me> too. <laughs> Sovereignty will kill capitalism. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. Speaking of sovereignty, you mentioned earlier 5D. Yeah. I wonder what that means to you. I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> I think... Um, you know, like, <laughs> excuse me, I'm, I'm a big sci-fi fan. So a lot of like the stuff I, I envision, I process through kind of like a fantastical lens. 
which I think a lot of us do. I think, you know, when you see pictures that people post on Instagram, it'd be like five deeds, like an angel floating in like an iridescent, like cloud, whatever. And you're like, okay. Um, what I do think happens and what I have been seeing, what I've been observing is an irreality of time. So time as a linear construct is not making sense anymore. Um, Meaning that I can do like, I first started to notice this when I would like drive somewhere in LA, which it basically takes 45 minutes to an hour to go anywhere in LA. And I drove somewhere that was my, my map said it would take me like 35 minutes to get there. And I got there in nine minutes, like things like that, where I'm just like, and then that happens consistently or I'll set the intention for like, okay, let me get there in five minutes. And then I do. So seeing a very quick manifestation period between my intention and then what appears in reality, that's, that's an example. Um, also seeing a totally different reality than some other people. And I think like, um, I see that in, in, in white, white culture, the, the inability to empathize with the pain and grief of black and indigenous people and people of color is to me a mapping of two different worlds on top of each other that like, and I see this because I've, I've done a lot of like studying of, and like work around um, family separation for asylum seekers at the border that we can observe this happening and we can ignore it or we can connect to it emotionally and understand that that is a reality that's happening right now. There are like different. And so like the big issue, and I think like I, I keep seeing this meme going around, like, it says like, did you manifest it or is, was it white supremacy? And I want to push back on that meme and say like, it's both, it's, it's both mm-hmm. things. But like when you have a social privilege, you can manifest a reality that is preferable and comfortable for you. Um, mm-hmm. And so to me, like asking how we can be in 5d is I don't, I want to say it's like we can see through our reality to other realities. We can understand that that's happening. Like there are toddlers separated right now in jail, toddlers, babies from their parents who don't even speak much less have, you know, like had no human agency to get into the situation that they're in. And we allow it. We don't, we're not, we're not in the streets protesting about that. We just, we know that it happens and we let it happen. And so I wonder when we will map that reality onto our reality. But we are so conditioned to ignore things like that. So like living in urban centers, we don't, like the we're our ability to see through has been very 
dulled simply even just by looking at like urban landscapes, like the fact that we don't see dirt or the earth at all. Like everything is paved over. So it's really hard to conceive of this place as a natural place. And if we can't understand that connection, then how would we ever care for nature? If we can't even like see that that's a reality, like underneath the pavement is dirt and that dirt can sustain life. Um, but we don't see it and we, we, we disavow that it's there. So I really think like the ascension process is like, I don't know what to say about it other than I think part of it is going to be seeing through our reality to other realities that are mapped right on top of ours. Yeah. I feel that. I feel that so deeply that to move forward, we need to hold all of the worlds simultaneously. Yeah. Because we know, we know that um, reality is not the same for everyone. Everyone, every individual has a different experience of reality and unless we are educated or taught, uh, we don't understand that. We don't. We see our world, and maybe we see some uh, flux within our world. But until we uh, ha- go to new countries, or make new friends, or watch stories that are different from our ours, or listen t- to people who have had different experiences, we can't hold that. And until we can hold all of that, we won't. We won't ascend. We won't move forward. Yeah. But I think it's also, like, I think, like, a very troubling, disturbing part of, like, the U.S. culture, American culture, is that we can be shown intense suffering and pain and violence and still choose to look away. So it isn't just simply exposure. It's, like, I'm interested in, like, like as a researcher in decoloniality, I'm interested in like this thing that I've been calling an empathy attack that like for those of us that have empathy, that's reserved only for the people that we come in contact with or the people that we know, or, you know, how do we like attack that ability, that portal to get people to see across the bridge, across the aisle to the people that they don't see a mirror in. So like if you're a conservative white person from the U S how can you, how can your empathy be appealed to see the incredible suffering that's happening at the hands of policymakers that are conservative white people for like, you know, that toddler that's in jail separated from their family. How can we like, because the, the portal is there. It's, It just, I feel like it needs to be opened and safely open. Like people need to feel like because they're powerless from, you know, the core wound of the U.S., can I be in my power and is it okay to feel empathy? And will I, the idea that I'll lose something by caring for another person is false. And how do I, how do we help people understand that? That like you can care for others and it won't take any of your, abundance away it won't cost you anything Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah I know there's so much wrapped up in that but yeah my intuition is that they close off their empathy because they can't hold the pain that would come with acknowledging 
yeah, that's a, a legit, like, psychoanalytic process called splitting. It's, uh, you know, the dissociation that happens. And, and this happens to every people, every person that, like, you know, they're, when the psyche doesn't perceive that it can hold the amount of pain, it will split off and like compartmentalize that stuff. And, and, and the interesting thing in the process of the disavowal is that disavowing. So like splitting can often happen in an unconscious way. We're not even aware that we're dissociating from something or compartmentalizing something, but a disavowal is like when you have a conscious on some level, there's a conscious choice to look away and then it becomes like an unconscious process. But the first meeting of that really painful thing is so painful that you choose to look away. And for me, that's the only thing I can understand is happening when people like are confronted with what's happening at the Southern U S border is like, it's too much and they choose to look away. And so then for the rest of us who are doing this work, at least for me, and I'm not saying this is for everyone, how can I help people feel safe to hold that pain and then feel empowered to do something about it, to use your privilege, to leverage your privilege, to bring justice to those people and bring care to those Mm. people that are separated from it. Mm. But yeah, it's, it's so much. It is so much. I'm, I'm, constantly struggling to hold the weight of of that and and constantly having to I don't know if I'm if I'm splitting or separating or just like having to set it aside so I can experience joy yeah but I have been feeling lately I I think that when I am in moments of joy that it has been heightened because I have been holding more of the pain yeah yeah I wonder when people come to you for readings, do they, do they ask about that? Are they seeking advice on how to, to move through the pain? Sometimes. I mean, yeah, I, I think, um, because I'm an inherently, I'm inherently like in interested in like, and oriented toward like, like, the nature of oppression and power and justice and um, um, that always, not always, but it often enters into a reading. So like situating someone's experience, not just as an individual, but as an individual in the context of a legacy of colonialism. um, I, I feel like it does come in a lot. Yeah. And often what the records will say is that like, if we can get into that observer perspective, then we can observe the, what is causing the pain or the suffering rather than just buying into, this is the only experience. Cause when you buy into like, this is the only experience life sucks. I hate my life. Then you close off a lot of options and opportunities for moving through it. But if you can get into the observer perspective and, and look at yourself going through it, it doesn't mean you ignore that it's painful, but you look at yourself going through it and you can look at yourself with compassion, which is to feel that compassion plus accountability. Like, oh my gosh, you know, 
wow, Leah, I am, I can witness that you're going through so much. You're doing the best you could. Now, what, what can you learn from the situation? How, what do you need to move through this? What, what do you need to believe about yourself in order to like, let go of the suffering component and orient yourself toward a forward movement through this, this situation? Um, yeah, I think people do, people do talk a lot about that in readings. So. Mm. How do you, in your day to day, um, like, do you have any mantras or tools or reminders or little sayings that you repeat to yourself to, to recognize that the discomfort is necessary, that your worth is inherent and and isn't a conversation that, you know, the pain, that the trauma that you're unpacking and confronting is leading to greater joy? Yes. (laughs) Um, well, the records always say, see you next lifetime, meaning there's like an, especially I think in like the spiritual, <laughs> the spiritual industrial complex, like in the spiritual community, people who are like on the path of healing, which I put quotes around because I hate that word. Um, there's like this pressure to like, I want to heal this thing. I need to get through this. I need to cut these cords. I need to release this thing. And the records are like, there's no time we've been, we've been with you forever and we will be with you forever and you will exist forever. So if you don't get it this time, we'll see you next lifetime. We don't care. Um, And I think that kind of like, on the one hand, it'd be like, Oh my God, I don't want to go through another lifetime of this. But then on the other hand, it feels like, okay, then I'm just going to get to what I get to. And if I don't get to it, I don't have to. And then also com- just the word compassion itself is almost like a trigger for me, but just that like, there are going to be things that are too painful for us to get to. And that's totally okay. And there's only compassion for us. Even if we choose, you know, if we choose to ignore and turn away and disavow from things that we know we probably should putting quotes around this too, like do better for ourselves. If we can't do it because we don't have the strength, that's okay too. There's only compassion for us. Um, But yeah, just the like, we'll see you next lifetime is like one of my favorite phrases. And I'm always like, you guys are so flippant, like to the records, like, come on. (laughs) But I love that. I I had a reading with um, another Akashic records reader and I asked a question and they just laughed at me. Like it came out as this like deep guttural, like masculine laugh. And I was like very confronted by it. <laughs> the records are sassy. They're very sassy. Like your master's teachers and loved ones are, they have a good sense of humor often. So I appreciate that. Yeah. And see you next lifetime. I mean, they're like, we're not participating in linear times. So yeah. Like- yeah. Yeah. You sweet human thinking that you can like get it all done and like yeah. heal it all. <laughs> yeah. 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 No way. Wow. Wow. Thank you for that. That's, um, that's really, I'm going to sit with that. Um, again, I, you know, this kind of martyr performance that I've been in this, this white savior um, belief of that, like everything can be fixed and everything can be solved and everything can be healed. And that just being another way of form of control and dominion. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. 
which were which is exactly what we need to release um yeah. and move away from so release the control and just be yeah. in the moment with the and compassion also, and also be in the moment with the discomfort instead of mm. trying to run away from something like really sitting with the discomfort is it sucks but we can do it and we should do it absolutely yeah i remind myself often when i'm in the discomfort that you know that this is what is used to sell me um uh the things that keep the world burning the over consumerism the yeah you know you're unhappy so eat this drink this like yeah. don't think about it take a vacation <laughs> yeah which goes back to that the right to comfort that like mm-hmm. i will spend money i will like i will do take any i go to any length i can even if it's at the cost of other people's safety or you know happiness in order to not feel the discomfort. Mm. So it's, I'm not saying that we need to sit in discomfort just for the sake of sitting in it, but like not trying to f- evade discomfort, especially at the cost of other people yeah. or nature. Yeah. yeah. I hear that. And so much of how we participate in evading discomfort is at the cost of nature and other people, be it fast fashion or, uh, certain types of food, uh, or the or the vacations we take, the places we go, all of this, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, we we get to participate in it. Those who have privilege get to participate in these tools, uh, yeah. these methods. I mean, we're seeing that right now with like all the people that are like in in California. I mean, it's all over the place, but like in LA, there's a mandate that you have to wear a mask when you go out in public. You have to, and I mean, people are protesting that and. There's like, that's a a massive disavowal that I'm observing that like, whether or not you believe this virus is real or a pandemic or whatever the things you think it is, you've been presented with the idea that if you walk outside without a mask, you increase the chances of dying. And yet you still, instead of entertaining that and understanding that like, oh my gosh, my health and my life is so important. I'm going to struggle through the discomfort and do this. You choose to ignore it. And in doing so are jeopardizing all the people around you. Just like, I guess the story is like, there's a disavowal there and other people suffer the consequences. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm. Lots, lots to sit with here. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Leah. This has been a really deepening conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. I hope we can talk again. Yeah, I would love to. Yeah. Um, How can, um, we'll post all the links to your social media, but how can, do you have anything coming up you'd like to share? I know you're, you've started these study groups recently. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes. I don't know when this podcast will be released but on june 14th i'm doing a workshop on um for non for white people and non-black people of color on like how do you know when to enter or how do you know how to enter the black um lives movement like looking at at it from a decolonial perspective and looking at your positionality and your identity and knowing who you are 
Um, so that's on the 14th and that's going to be with, um, a transformational coach and friend named Dana Balicki. And then on the 26th, I'm doing the, um, of June, I'm doing the, um, first decolonial virtual decolonial study group. And it's going to be on the topic of the colonial roots of fat phobia and disgust. So that the, both of those things, the Honestly, the easiest way to find my stuff is on my Instagram in my link tree. Um, otherwise, I'm kind of like doing one event with one group and another event with another. But yeah, I think the Instagram is probably the easiest. Perfect. That's and will that talk on the 14th? Yeah. Will that talk of the 14th be available online afterwards? Um, I think they- so. I think we're going to, I don't know yet, but I think so. And it's a free workshop. It is open. All you have to do is make a donation to a black organization um, of your choice. And we list some, some um, suggestions and then you can register for free. Um, So yeah, I'm hoping that we do. We just have to figure it out. I've never done anything like that. So I need to like figure out the tech side and like make sure that people's faces aren't in the video and stuff like that. So yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. We're all learning so much so quickly with all of this tech gathering community. (laughs) Oh my God. I know. Yeah. 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 And so that's at crystals of Altamira. Um, I don't know if you can answer this question quickly, but what, what is Altamira? Um, not going to lie. Altamira means nothing. I, when I first started this account, I was making crystal jewelry as like little healing tools for people. And I've moved way away from that because I've gotten so busy in other directions, but um, I wanted to just call it Leah Garza jewelry or something like that. And nobody noticed or cared. And my metal smithing teacher, who's also a jewelry maker was like, you need to have like, you need to tell a story with your name. Like you need, you need to like have something like a fantasy. And I literally just ripped off the song caves of Altamira by Steely Dan. (laughs) So it doesn't like mean anything. Um, but instantly I got like a hundred followers like that weekend. People were like, Ooh, what is this mysterious thing? And so, yeah, it's, it's, and I keep asking the records, like, is it time to change my name? Should I go, should I just be known by my name? And they're like, no, not yet. It's not time. So I like it. It feels Mm -hmm. good. Yeah. It's great. I love it. I love making accords. You know, they get to be whatever you want them to be and the mystery there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You can come up with a whole narrative and, you know, you can be like, well, it's actually this mystical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I could. I really could. But I think it's funnier to just be like, I'm a it big Steely Dan fan. And that's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> respect. Respect. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for being here. Um, I'm really excited to to hear what people think about the episode. I know we've opened a lot of mind doors and um, that people will be excited to continue following your work. I hope so. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much for having me. This is such a joy. Take care.